There's an ancient Jewish legend about two brothers who lived on neighboring farms. This tale takes place long before, long ago in the Holy Land, but long before it was called the Holy Land, long before there was any temple or a nation of Israel. There were two simple, humble brothers who lived next door to each other and loved each other the way that brothers ought to love each other, but don't always. The older brother was in his mid-30s, married with a very large family. The younger brother was in his early 20s, unmarried, living alone. One day, the older brother looked over at his younger brother's farm, and he thought to himself, my brother lives all alone. If he gets hurt or becomes ill, there's no one to take care of him. I have my wife who watches over me, and our children are growing strong. I'll be fine. So early in the night, just after the sun had gone down, the older brother went to his grain bin, loaded up a big sack of grain, took it and dumped it into his brother's grain bin, and then returned home and went to bed. That same night, the younger brother looked over at his older brother's farm, and he thought to himself, my brother sure has a big load on his shoulders with that large family of his. If something happens to him, who's going to provide for all of them? The only one I have to worry about is myself. I'll be fine. So later in the night, around midnight, the younger brother went to his grain bin, loaded up a big sack of grain, took it and dumped it into his brother's grain bin, and returned home. Night after night, the two brothers continued this pattern, neither one aware of what the other was doing, neither one seeing the other because they did it at different hours. Weeks went by, each brother providing for the other Until one night, the older brother was a little bit later getting out of the house than normal, and the younger brother left the house a little earlier than he usually did. Under the bright reflection of a full moon, the two brothers came across one another, and they discovered what had been going on all along. They both dropped their bags of grain and embraced one another. As this ancient Jewish legend has it, God smiled down on the two brothers as they embraced and said, the spot of their embrace is where I will build my temple. For my presence is most fully made known when brothers live together in unity. I can't vouch for the truth of that story. As I say, it's a legend. But there is at least a ring of truth to it. The temple of God is more than just a place. It's more than a collection of stones piled on top of one another in a particular way. The temple refers to God's dwelling place on earth. The temple reveals the presence of God, and it reveals something of the nature of God. When the Jewish people sojourned in the wilderness, they took with them the tabernacle. The tabernacle was an elaborate tent in which God was said to dwell amongst them on their journey. It was a a temporary structure that could be moved from place to place because they were not yet settled in the Promised Land. The tabernacle was a prefiguration of the temple which would be built once they had moved into their inheritance. The temple itself, built during the reign of King Solomon, destroyed during the exile, rebuilt with the permission of King Cyrus and then destroyed again by the Romans, it too was merely a prefiguring. The Jewish people didn't know it at the time. They thought that the temple would be permanent. They thought, this is it. This is God's dwelling place on earth forever. 
but it was not so. The so-called permanent temple was destroyed twice over, and it still has not been rebuilt to this day. The New Testament lets us know there is yet another temple. And this one is the real temple. This one is the permanent temple. This one is the temple which, for which the Jerusalem temple was a mere symbol. The everlasting temple to which the Jerusalem temple was pointing is the church. Here is what Paul says about it in today's reading from his letter to the Ephesians. In him, meaning in Christ, in him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. A dwelling place for God. You, you meaning all of you, all of us, the church, you grow into a holy temple and are built into a dwelling place for God. Paul said something similar to that in his first letter to the Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That passage is often used to talk about the way that we take care of our own bodies, treating our bodies as a temple of God's Holy Spirit, I don't want to say that's a wrong interpretation. God does place his Holy Spirit within each believer, and our bodies are gifts from God to be treated as such. But that's not really what Paul is getting at here. Those verses from 1 Corinthians, they come immediately after the passage that we just read two weeks ago, the one in which Paul was writing about Jesus Christ being the foundation upon which the church is built. Just after using the analogy of a foundation and a building, then he immediately goes on to say, you are God's temple. This is the building he's been talking about. And he uses the collective form of the word you, meaning all of you, not as individual Christians, but a whole bunch of Christians joined together as the church. You all together, united in Christ as the church, are the temple of God. That's why in the middle of a passage where he's been writing about divisions and dissensions within the Corinthian church, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Not meaning that if you mistreat and bring harm to your own body, which has nothing to do with what he's been writing about, but if you, in your carelessness toward others, and by your self-centered sinfulness, cause damage to the church, the body of Christ, the collection of God's people then you are in real trouble. Because that body of Christ, that collection of God's people is the temple. That is where God dwells on earth. Remember what Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Does that mean that if you're alone in your prayer closet with no one else around, Jesus isn't there? Of course not. He's always there. When you have faith in Jesus, you are never alone. But he wants us to know there is something special that happens. Something very holy happens when you join together with others 
in the unity of faith, in mutual love. God is revealed in an even more powerful and more profound way when Christians come together in prayer, when Christians come together in worship, when Christians come together in service, when Christians demonstrate their unity in Christ. Being joined together, being united with one another because of the Christ who unites us with himself. That is what makes us the church. That is what builds us into a holy temple. It is here in our unity with one another, in our love for one another, in our service to one another. It is here in the church that God is revealed. It is here in the church that God dwells on earth. It is here in our faithfulness to Christ and to all others for whom Christ died that we grow into a holy temple, a living temple, an everlasting temple. And it is all built upon Jesus Christ. He is the one who unites us. Nothing else can do that. Looking to anything else to define us will only serve to further divide us. Our scripture reading for today is about the walls of division between different groups of people and how those walls were brought down in Jesus and why it is only Jesus that could break down those walls. The groups of people referenced specifically in the scripture are Jews and Gentiles. Paul was writing this letter to a primarily Gentile audience, and he says these Gentiles are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. Those who are called the circumcision are Jews, but it's clear that Paul is using the word called here somewhat sarcastically. You are called the uncircumcision, but that's not really what you are. You're called that by those who call themselves the circumcision, but that's not really what they are either. There's a whole lot of name-calling going on here, a whole lot of insinuation from one group about another. Can you imagine that kind of thing happening in a church? Hmm. In Christ... Those categories, those names, that pigeonholing of one group about another. In Christ, those things lose all their meaning. Prior to Christ, prior to Christ, the Jews were a people of hope. They they were the people of God. They knew God. They knew that God had claimed them. Even when they went through trials and persecutions and, and painful times of discipline, they always knew that God would bring them through. They were set apart. They were different. They were holy. They were special. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they were the complete opposite. They had not been chosen by God. They did not know God the way the Jews did, and they had no indication that God knew or cared about them. If they went through trials, they were on their own. If they faced pain, it was without redemption. They had no hope. Paul reminds them in this passage, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There could not have been a clearer distinction. There could not have been a more definite demarcation than the dividing line that separated Jews and Gentiles prior to Christ. 
But once Christ came, that all ended. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace. Verse 15, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Previously, the Jews had been a people of hope. The Gentiles had been without hope. The Jews had the promise of salvation. The Gentiles had no such promise. The Jews had been the people of God. The Gentiles had been without God. But then, then, the hope of the Jews came to fruition in Jesus. The promise of salvation was fulfilled in Jesus. The presence of God came in fullness in Jesus And Jesus came for everyone. For everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. The hope, the promise, the presence of God, which had once been the exclusive domain of the Jews, was now available to all people. There was no more division. Christ did this, as Paul says in verse 16, that he might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Thus putting to death that hostility. So there it is. Because of Jesus, there is no more hostility between Jews and Gentiles, right? Because of the sacrifice Christ made, there is no more division between Christians, right? Because of the cross, the church is all peace and love and harmony, right? Well, that's the way it should be. That's the way it could be if we were all focused solely on Christ and the sacrifice he made for us and the fact that he has already made us all one, whether we like it or not. And that's the way it would be were we to remember that we are not strangers or aliens or adversaries with anyone who is in Christ. We are family, members of the same household. We are all members of the family and household of God. We've been drawing on the metaphor of a building these past couple of weeks, reading Bible passages that talk about building upon the firm foundation of Jesus. This passage from Ephesians is another one. This time, though, it talks about the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, I want to make it clear that when Paul says the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the apostles and prophets are not the foundation themselves, but the message they delivered, the word of God they proclaimed, that is the foundation. And the message they delivered, the word of God they proclaimed, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. But now Paul draws in a different building metaphor, that of a cornerstone, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together. This cornerstone metaphor, I think it may have lost some of its significance for us in recent days. That's because in our day, there are two different types of cornerstones. There is the actual cornerstone, which is absolutely essential to the integrity of the building. 
And then there is the commemorative cornerstone, which is used for the dedication of a building. The actual cornerstone is the very first stone to be laid. Its placement is essential because all the rest of the building will be oriented by that cornerstone. All the other stones in the building need to be lined up according to the placement of that cornerstone. The cornerstone then is used not only for foundation but for orientation, for structuring the the direction of the building. The cornerstone is used to ensure the integrity of the building. If the cornerstone is taken away, the whole building collapses. When I think of a cornerstone today, though, what I'm usually picturing is something quite different. My picture of a cornerstone is that commemorative block that's used as a memorial rather than a foundation. The church I was serving in Xenia just before coming here celebrated the 50th anniversary of their building last fall. The church is much older than that, but they have been in their current location for 50 years. And as part of that 50th anniversary celebration, we were supposed to open a time capsule that had been placed inside the cornerstone. The problem with that is that that building, much like this one, was built in three different stages. So there were three different cornerstones. And there was some confusion as to which of the three cornerstones held the time capsule inside. I have visions of Geraldo Rivera opening Al Capone's vault. (laughs) I imagined we'd dig out one of the cornerstones, crack it open to big ceremony only to find it empty because we had the wrong one. We decided not to excavate the time capsule. Instead, we read a list of what was inside it. I took a walk around the outside of this building this week. I found two cornerstones, one from 1968, another from 2003. I'm guessing there's probably a third somewhere. I don't know for sure. I don't know what, if anything, is inside any of them. The thing about these commemorative cornerstones is that they are designed in such a way that you can take the stone out, perhaps open it up if there's something inside of it, without doing any damage to the integrity of the building. The cornerstone is basically just for show. It reminds us of our history, but doesn't actually hold the building together. The Bible tells us that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the church, which is the temple of God. Here's the problem. A lot of Christians treat Jesus like one of those commemorative cornerstones. He's just there for show. We talk about him, we sing about him, but we don't build our lives on him. We have paintings of him, we use his name an awful lot, but we don't measure the way we treat one another by the example he has commanded us to follow. He reminds us of our history, but he doesn't really impact our present. He's nice for decoration, but he doesn't really hold us together. Friends, that is not what the Bible means when it calls Jesus Christ the cornerstone. Jesus is not for show. Jesus Christ is the real cornerstone without which the church cannot stand. 
Jesus is not only the foundation upon which the church is built, he is also the living cornerstone around which the entire organization is oriented. He is the one by which we line up our way of being and and what we do and how we interact with one another. He is the one by which everything gets measured to ensure the integrity of the entire structure. He is the one who holds the whole thing together. Take Jesus away and the church will surely fall. With Jesus in place, though, with Jesus Christ in place, and with all the rest of the church oriented properly to him, then every other piece fits perfectly into place with each other and with the whole. With Jesus Christ as the true cornerstone, the church has integrity. It all holds together. It has strength and endurance, an endurance that will last forever. With Christ Jesus as its cornerstone, the church is a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God. Wherever God's truth and love are revealed in community, wherever brothers and sisters in Christ embrace each other with mutual affection because they know they have been made one in Christ, wherever that witness to God's grace goes out to the world, God looks down and says, this, this is where I will build my temple. I will dwell among these, my children. I will be their God. And they will be my people. May the Lord say that of us here at Faith Community. Amen.